morning. If you have a Bible, open it up and turn to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. While you're turning, the little children's book that's here that was at our house that was about the, the story of Jim Elliott, the missionary who went to the Alka Indians. At the end of the story, it explains why exactly, and I, I'm assuming this is a true story. Um, if it's not, we'll pull it from the shelves. But um, why exactly the Alka Indians killed the missionaries? And the way it told the story was these missionaries went to the Indians and, and in attempting to build a relationship with them, one of them pulled out of his pocket a photograph he had of one of their relatives that had been gone from the tribe in order to say, we know your relative, we're friends. The Indians had no concept of clothing and especially of pockets. And so when he pulled this picture out of his pocket, they didn't know what had just happened. They also had no concept of a photograph. And so when they saw their relative in a photograph, they didn't know what it was. No concept. And so they sort of drew the conclusion that this man had just pulled out of his body a flattened figure of their relative and they thought these people have eaten our relative, have pulled her out of their pockets and now they're going to eat us. And they killed them. Now that sounds absolutely absurd to us who have pockets and take pictures every single day. They had no basis of understanding what this was. It, it scared them because he pulled something out of his pocket. And when I heard that, I thought, well, that's exactly like me standing in front of this congregation and attempting to explain a God with whom we have or for whom we have no basis of comparison. Now, that he even says in his word, to whom shall you compare me? There's nothing. We have no reference point. But thankfully, he's revealed himself to us in his word and... In Exodus chapter 3, we have one of the, the best and most important self-revelations of God uh, to Moses. And so I want to read this. But I want you to remember that as we go through these um, pockets and photographs, just keep that in your mind, pockets and photographs, we are attempting to, to, to know a God who is unlike anything that we have. I want to read for you Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And then I'll skip and I'll read verses 13 through 15. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the midst of the bush, Moses, Moses. 
And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Verse 13, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are desperate desperate to have a right understanding of who you are. Oh Lord, every fault of ours, every sin, every shortcoming, every failure to act and to do is because we have not first rightly understood you. And then because we've not rightly understood you, we have not rightly understood ourselves. And so God, I pray that you'd just help us to understand what you are like and what great encouragement it is that you are who you say you are. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The fountainhead of all true blessedness is God. While many would substitute the knowledge of God for the sensual and temporal benefits from God, we understand that the attainment of all spiritual blessedness comes through knowing God and being known by God. Now when it comes to ourselves, we grow in the knowledge of one another through communion and fellowship with one another. And it is very similar with God. We must commune with Him if we are to know Him. We speak to Him in prayer. We will hear Him speak to us through His Word. And this is how we come to know God. Again, pockets and photographs. We can't know Him if He doesn't say, this is who I am. In His Word, He speaks and reveals to us who He is, what He is like, and how we might know Him. And our confession of faith attempts to summarize that scriptural teaching. That's what it does. It, it assumes all of the Bible and then tries to summarize it all into paragraphs and chapters. And so using the confession of faith as our tour guide into the scriptures, we've arrived at the second attribute of God listed in paragraph 1 of chapter 2 of God and the Holy Trinity. And I'll read that first line. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God semicolon, whose subsistence is in and of himself. 
And that will be our phrase tonight. Whose subsistence is in and of himself. Now before we dig into that, I want to give you an outline that I plan to use throughout these attributes as we study them. I think this outline will help us to not only help us all to better understand the attributes themselves, but they'll most certainly help me to get across what the Scriptures teach concerning God. Uh, as I, I was telling some of the guys this morning, I feel like I just stand up here and just sort of say the same thing in a bunch of different ways for approximately an hour, and then we, we close and use Scripture proofs. Um, hopefully this outline will at least help give some structure to that. First, we'll look at the attribute defined. Then we'll look at the attribute described. Then we'll look at the attribute displayed. And then we will look at the attribute applied. Defined, described, displayed, and applied. And when I define the attribute, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take what the confession says and explain it, and if I need to, I'll, I'll transform the confessional language into other more readily understood theological terms or, or biblical terminologies. That I'll just define for you what the attribute is that the, the, the confession is putting forth. Then when I describe it, I want to take that confessional language and that theological language and try to break it down into its simplest terms so that we can digest it. I can give you words all day long, but unless we, we see what these words mean and how they, how they work, they'll be useless. So I'll define it, I'll describe it, and then when I display it, or when we see the attribute displayed, what I'll do then is try to run to the Scriptures and show how the attributes themselves are either asserted about God or displayed through His actions. So they'll be shown from the Scriptures. And then the attribute applied will we'll show how the attributes are necessarily applicable and useful in our own understanding of God and of ourselves. In other words, why does it matter? Last week, God, our God uh, is but one only, living and true God. Well, why does it matter that He's one? Why does it matter that He's living? Why does it matter that He's true? And, and hopefully we accomplished that last week. But again, I want to try to stick with that four-point structure as often as possible. So then first, the attribute defined the confessional formulation again, whose subsistence is in and of himself. Whose, obviously, personal pronoun, we're still talking about God, Yahweh, the one only living and true God, the God of the Bible. All other gods are false gods, dead gods, demons. This is the one true God whose subsistence. Now that might be a new word. That is the most basic, fundamental essence of being. When you hear sub, think the bottom. When you go sub, you're going to the bottom. You're going to the most basic, the, the, the least common denominator, so to speak. His subsistence, his most basic fundamental essence of being is in and of himself. Now here we have two prepositions. First, it is in himself, that is in his being as a part of his singular and simple, essential nature 
in him, but also of himself. Or we might say from himself. It finds its source in himself. And so what is the confession saying? It's saying that God's most basic and fundamental essence of being is found in God and has its source from God. Now, historically, the doctrine concerning God's being, or this doctrine, has been called two things. First, the aseity of God, and secondly, the independence of God. Aseity and independence. Now, I want to define both of those and explain how they're different. Usually, aseity is just stated and, and independence is not necessary, but they are different. And, and when you read, you may find some, uh, both of the terms used. Aseity. Many of you have probably heard, and some of you, if you are of the more refined of us, have probably used the term per se. Do you know what that means? Per se. Christie's used it, and I asked her if she knew what it meant, and she didn't. Here's an example. I do not have an iPhone X. Is that, it's not 10, it's X. Uh, right? Is that what the, the newest one is? Okay, X. iPhone X. Is it 10? Okay, stands for 10. I, didn't, I never saw 8 or 9. <coughs> so I, anyway, so I don't have the newest iPhone, whatever it might be. Now you might come to me and say, do you not have one because you don't like them? And I might say, well, it's not that I don't like the phone per se. It's just that I already have a phone. Now, what do I mean by per se? Per se is a Latin phrase that means by itself. In other words, the phone by itself is not the issue. I don't have a problem with the phone by itself. There are other issues that prohibit me from taking the phone. I already have a phone per se. And so now you can use that phrase. You know what it means, per se. Um, you might say, do you like that restaurant? Well, no, I don't like that restaurant. What is it? You don't like the food? Well, it's not that I don't like the food per se. It's just that the people that hang out there are just strange. I don't like the food by its... It's not that it's the food by itself. There are other issues, per se. Well, there's another Latin phrase very similar to per se, which is not near as common, and that is a se. The letter A and then S-E, ase. And ase means of or from itself. And they're different. So the ase iti of God is the assertion that God's being is from or of himself. That when it pertains to the being and the existence of God, Neither of those, that is his being or his existence, can be traced to anything outside of him, outside of God. Rather, the being and existence of God are found in God and cannot be traced any further because there is no further to go. I'll state it again. In other words, we'll come in full circle. God's existence is 
in and of or from himself. He is self-existent. He is self-sustained. God has no parents. God has no maker. God has no beginning. God has no start. God has no batteries. God has no energy source. God has no power supply. That's the aseity of God, of or from himself. And it deals primarily with his essence or being. That truth logically leads to the second attribute, which again is very similar, but it's distinguished from the aseity of God, which is his independence. Now that's not near as hard to define. Independence. God is in, not, dependent. God is not dependent. God looks nowhere else. God leans on nothing. God is not contingent on anything else. Nothing in God or that God does is um, hinges on or is conditioned by anything else. God is independent. Now, that God is independent assumes his aseity. Because God is ase, he has no need for anything outside of himself or separate from himself to sustain himself or anything that he does. He's not dependent on any created thing. He's totally free. He has no need, no lack. We read in Psalm 50 and verse 13. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Well, the implied answer rhetorically is no. He doesn't eat. He doesn't need. So when we say that God's subsistence is in and of himself, we are confessing that God is ase and therefore independent. That God derives his existence from himself and therefore relies on nothing outside of himself. So that's sort of the theological language that the confession is using. The confession is not to meant, meant to be a theological textbook. And so it uses common language that historically other authors have put into more uh, technical terms. So secondly, the attributes described. Again, since independence flows from aseity, then we'll start with aseity again, and then I'll clarify what that actually means concerning God. Aseity described. To assert the aseity of God is to assert that God <coughs> is totally self-sufficient with regard to his existence. His existence comes from himself. Again, if it sounds like I'm just saying the same thing over and over a bunch of different ways, that's what it feels like. His existence comes from himself. To illustrate, in our day, it has become fairly popular to give great attention to your water. Tap water is just too terribly awful and disgusting for people to drink in America. And so we now buy bottled water. 
Well, bottled water now has its own issues. Is it too acidic? Is it alkaline? All these things. Does it have chemicals? And so if you're snooty like that, you go to great strides to, to make sure you have the bottled water that is the most pure bottled water of the pure. So perhaps you want spring water from a deep artesian spring. Well, you're still going to drink it from a bottle. And you're going to get that bottle from a store that received it off of a truck that carried it from bottling plant. You go back further than that, that plant got it from a truck that maybe perhaps pumped it from a spring. Well, that spring got it from an underground river somewhere deep in the earth. Well, that underground river probably received it as water droplets dripped from the tops of caverns that flowed down from high in a mountain range somewhere. Well, we could go back further. Then how did it get to the top of the mountain? Where'd the water come from? Well, clouds, precipitation, rain, snow, fog. It all gets to the top of the mountain, trickles down through the mountain, into the caverns, into the underground rivers. It comes up in the spring. We pump it. We have our perfectly pure spring water. Well, how did it get into the cloud? Well, it evaporated from somewhere else in the world. And it was carried there. So you see, with the water cycle the way it is, if you want to trace the water to its source, all the way back, you're going to follow this endless cycle of tracing and tracing and tracing until you get back to its creator, the moment when God said, water. That's its source. Well, with God, there is no other source. There's no tracing back any further. Some of your children might ask, where did God come from? We could answer, God does not come from. God is. God is His own source. We saw last week that God is the only God, chronologically speaking. Isaiah 43.10, Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. You see, God's aseity, the fact that He's sourced from Himself, is, He derives His being and existence in and of Himself, assumes there was no God before God that made God. It assumes that there was no Him before Him. There's nothing to cause Him. He is exclusive of any aid, any creator. To quote Herman Bavink, he says... God is what He is through and by His own self. Now, we were all born from parents who were born from parents who were born from parents who were born from parents all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. We might come along and we're born and we're sort of shaped by the culture that we live in, the, the time and the, 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 the way of life, our country or whatever it is the things that we take into our minds that we perceive that shapes who we are, not God. God is. God has no origin. In Psalm 90 and verse 2, we read, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Notice the tense. You are God from everlasting to everlasting, not you were God, not you will be God, you are 
He's no origin. He didn't come from anything. We saw last week, God is the living God. Well, we are living, physically speaking. We are living creatures. When we say that we are living, we're saying that our bodies continue to produce the signs of life, and therefore we're living. In order for our bodies to produce those signs of life, the vital signs, the, our major organs have to be at least functioning to some extent on their own. Well, for our organs to function properly, they need nutrients like water and food and oxygen and vitamins. Well, God is also alive. He is the living God. The difference is He does not derive His life from anything. He has no organs. He has no, needs no nutrients. He needs nothing. God simply lives because He is life. Probably one of the most clear verses on this subject is Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25, Paul's preaching. And he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul says God needs no dwelling. God requires no service. He needs nothing. As a matter of fact, God is the giver of life and breath and everything. He doesn't need anything. He gives everything. And so when we talk about God's existence, ah say, the aseity of God, we're saying that God has everything necessary for His existence in Himself. Now listen to this. Since all that is in God is God, then whatever God has in Himself that actuates His being, and that's not a good term, but I don't know of another one. Pockets and photos. All that is in God is God. Then whatever God has in Himself that actuates His being is Him. There's nothing else. Because God is God, He must exist. It is of His essential nature to exist without origin, without beginning. <coughs> or to put it another way, because He is God, He is. God, in all of His incomprehensible excellencies, has within Himself the power to be. God is the source of His own being. God does not come from God. God was not created by God. God is of God, or even more simply, God is. That's the aseity of God described. Independence, again, is a little more simple. All of that leads to the independence of God. If He has all He needs in Himself, then He needs nothing that He is not. Now, there are essentially two types of things. There are creator and creature. 
Necessary and contingent. That which must be and that which is only because of something else. And so when we say that God is independent, we are saying that He is creator and that as creator, He has no need of creature whatsoever. As the only necessary being, He is contingent upon nothing. He must be because He is the cause of all other things. Because He has always been and creatures have not always been, then we cannot say in any way that God needs any creature for His existence. It also follows since God is simple that every attribute of God is also independent of every created thing. Now if this doesn't make you feel small, I don't know what else will. But all of His virtues, like love, mercy, kindness, patience, goodness, they are not dependent on anything outside of God, including sinners. He does not need sinners to be merciful. He does not need sinners to be loving. He does not need sinners to be kind. Additionally, His eternal decree is independent. You see how uh, so much of our theology flows from the character of God. We, we don't just come along and say, well, we like to say that, that God does whatever He wants to and God chooses who He wants to and God... That's not how it works. We start with who God is. God is ase, therefore God is dependent. Because God is, or God is independent, because God is independent, and because God is one, therefore all of His attributes must also be independent. Therefore, His eternal decree must be independent. Therefore, it, God did not take into account anything that He foresaw in the future in order to decree all eternity. Because there was no future to foresee. Because He decreed it. All of his works outside of himself, creation, the history of the nation of Israel, Christ's advent, salvation and redemption, none of these are in any way dependent upon any created thing. It cannot be. Amen. Now what does this necessarily imply? God does not need help. God has never been helped. God does not need any kind of defense for any kind of for himself or any of his actions. God does not need your love, your companionship to be happy or fulfilled. God was not and is not in any way lonely or lacking before he created or now. God does not need you to carry out His redemptive mission. God does not need you to take His gospel to the nations. God has never gained anything. God derives no benefit from creation whatsoever. You do not do God any favors. You do not even make God's name great. All you can do is say that it is great. God is no more advanced benefited or aided in any area of his being or his work 
after approximately 6,000 years of creation history than in the 6,000 eternities before creation. He just is. Now, what does that mean for us? God has chosen to use creatures, men in particular, to carry out various aspects of His work. Although, lest we get arrogant, He also uses fish and donkeys and things like that. This is not because He needs help. It's actually in spite of the fact that He needs no help and that we only contribute natural inability to the work. In spite of our tendency to introduce sin and error into His perfect work, He uses men. Now think about that. Because some people get this backwards. God's strength, God's ability, God's power, God's glory is manifested not in the fact that He was wise enough to take advantage of our inherent worth and usefulness. His strength and ability and power and glory is manifested in the fact that He can actually come along and make use of our weak and depraved efforts and still bring to pass a perfect work. God is ase. His subsistence is in and of Himself. Because God is ase, He is independent. Third heading, then the attribute displayed. Where did the Scriptures teach this? We've already seen a couple examples, but I want to return to the text that we read at the beginning and show you how this attribute is actually rooted in God's name, as are many of His attributes. They're rooted in the name of God. We read in Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Now we might ask, just in understanding the text, first, who was in the bush? We read first that the angel of the Lord appeared to him. But then later we read that God called to him out of the bush. As is often the case in the Old Testament, when you read the angel of the Lord, that is none other than God himself, manifesting himself. And we also seen in verse 6 that God would not, or Moses didn't want to look at the bush so that he would not see God. Not that he wouldn't look at a bush, but so that he would not look upon God. So God is here speaking, manifesting his presence in this bush, speaking out of the bush, how did God choose to manifest Himself? Well, it says that He manifested Himself or uh, that He appeared in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. But we also see that the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. So not only was it a fire, but it was a fire that was burning without consuming the bush. Now think about this. 
Think about a bonfire or a, a campfire, a fireplace, a match or a piece of paper that you, that's on fire. What happens when the wood is gone, when the match head is burnt? When the, when the paper burns away, the fire burns out. Now, why is that? It's because fire needs fuel. It needs something to burn, to consume, so that it can keep burning. And as it consumes the wood or the paper or the match head, it continues to burn. Once the fuel is consumed, the fire goes out because it doesn't have what it needs to burn. It's the same with a, a gasoline engine. When you run out of gas, your fuel's gone, you can't have combustion, you can't have fire anymore, your car won't run. And so in Exodus 3, we have this bush that is on fire, but it is not consumed. In other words, that which would normally be fuel for the fire, the stems and twigs and, and leaves of the bush, is not consumed. We can't imagine this. It's burning, but nothing's happening to it. This shows that the fire, the manifestation of God's presence, does not need in order to be. It just is. It doesn't need wood. It doesn't need leaves. It doesn't need twigs. It doesn't need gasoline. The fire depended upon nothing for its burning. You see, God was showing Moses, teaching Moses an object lesson about himself. Namely, I don't need anything. I am completely self-existent, self-sustained, and independent of all other things. Later in the passage, we see that what was displayed in the bush was then declared by God. In verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is the name of God. Remember, the name of God is the representation of all of His divine fullness. His name is who He is. It encompasses all that He is. And His name is I Am. Or I Am Who I Am. And Am has to do with the being of God. Think about this. When I say I Am there's always something else coming after that that qualifies what I am. I am doing this. I am being this. I'm going there. I'm saying. I'm feeling. I'm seeing. I'm smelling. I'm hearing. All of that is related to some action within the realm of creation. And all of these kinds of statements, I am and whatever follows that we say, is a statement of, uh, it's clarifying the present state of your existence. It's letting other people know about yourself as you relate to the world around you. Now with God, it is not so. He says, I am. And that is a complete statement with regard to His existence, now and for eternity. I am. Again, if I said, I am Paul, it's because I want to distinguish myself from other people. I use that denomination that was given to me by my parents. That statement, I am Paul, assumes 
I have parents. It assumes that I submit to their authority in giving me a name. It assumes uh, the legal obligation that I have to carry that given name. But God has no need to distinguish Himself. He is purely other. And so when He says, I am, He immediately distinguishes Himself from all creation. God has no parents. God submits to none. God is under no obligation. He simply is. God's name is not I am now, who I once was not because of something created. His name is not I am now, who I will not be because of some extenuating circumstances that might come along. His name is not I will be what I wasn't. I am not who I was. I will not be who I am. His name is not I am here, I am there, I am now, I am then. It is I am. Now, eternally, past, and future, who I am. Now, eternally, past, and future. God is not becoming. God is not growing. God is not morphing. God is not advancing. God is not spreading. He is I am. Now think about this. I am Yahweh. That's the covenant name of God. He says, this is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I want to let you know this is my covenant name. I am. <coughs> now, how can... God be sure and how can we be sure that this covenant will stand for all eternity? How can we know? The answer is because God is ase. God is independent. All of God's acts, all of God's attributes are independent. We never have to worry that some created thing that came along after might somehow affect his covenant faithfulness. He can say, I am, and that seals eternity's redemption for his people. Now that's just one way that this is applicable, but let's look at some others, others in heading number four, the attribute applied. And the primary application of this truth, again, is found in the fact that all of God's perfections as they come to us and bless us and nourish our souls, all of God's actions for us in time are totally independent of any other created thing. So for example, take life and the theme of life in Scripture. God is the giver and the sustainer of life, both physical life and spiritual life. Because of Adam's sin, death into the world, both physical death and spiritual death. Christ has come that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly than ever we had before in Adam. In Christ, we will live forever. But how will we be sustained forever? How will we, how will our lives be sustained for eternity? Jesus says in John 5, 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Unlike us, God needs no food, no water, no oxygen, no sleep, no medicine. He 
has life in himself because he is life. Though heaven and earth would pass away, God is life from everlasting. And so while we naturally are dead in trespasses and sins, running headlong toward physical and eternal death, God, who is life and has life, comes to us and gives us life in Christ. 1 John 5.11 says, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. You see, God has life in Himself because His life comes from Himself. He is life. He's the source of life. He gives us Christ. Life is in Christ. And so when we have Christ, we have life. For all eternity... The self-existent, self-sustaining God who by His Spirit lives within us will be the sustenance of our physical and spiritual life. And so we don't ever have to worry that, well, I mean, there's going to be a lot of people in eternity, right, on the new earth. And what happens if we eventually just sort of dwindle the power supply down? God is life. There is no supply. He is it. Consider wisdom. Through the wisdom of the world, the natural wisdom of man, we cannot know God. Our foolish hearts are darkened, and any truth revealed we suppress in our unrighteousness. How then can we who are foolish know God and obtain wisdom? The answer is, again, we look to God. Romans eleven thirty four 34 says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor? The rhetorical answer is, no one has been the Lord's counselor. Well, why is that? Because God needs no counsel. He possesses all wisdom. God's wisdom and knowledge are not dependent on someone else's ability to give Him counsel or to educate Him. In other words, God is completely uneducated. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 13 and 14 who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? Again, rhetorically, the answer is nobody. Back to ourselves, we are unwise. We are foolish. We need to be taught. God is the source of all true wisdom. He does not look at us or any created thing to learn, but Himself teaches all wisdom. And then we read in 1 Corinthians 1.24, Christ is the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ has become to us wisdom from God. How can we obtain wisdom and know this God? We must have Christ. In union with Christ, we come to know God, and thus we can obtain true wisdom. You see, all of this, God is not contingent on, on anything, none of His attributes, none of His works. It's all just from Him. The love of God. One of the great separations or distinctions between false religions and biblical Christianity is how each would espouse the love and the compassion of God. Must we act, work, do, or comply in order to find ourselves loved of God? If God is independent, then God's love is independent. It simply cannot be conditioned upon any created thing. 
And so we read in Hosea 14, 4, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. Is God's love coerced? Is God's love earned? Is God's love wooed or obtained? No, God loves freely. God's love is independent. He does not love because of creatures. He loves in spite of creatures. And so while our love is fickle and fading, often dependent on our present mood and the events of the day, God's love is eternally the same, free from all creaturely interjections, unswayed by any creature habit. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And so then later we read, we love and can only true love, we might truly love because He first loved us. He is the source, dependent on none. It comes to us from Him. Consider God's lordship or His authority. Is it our duty to go to men and ask them if they wouldn't please mind to make Christ Lord of their lives? Is our evangelism an appeal to a voting constituency laboring to see God enthroned someday? Psalm 55, 19 says, God will give ear and humble them, he who is enthroned from of old. Enthroned, that is, he who is sovereign over all from of old. Before time, before the foundation of the world, from eternity, when there was no other, when there was no creature, he is enthroned. God's authority, then, is independent and self-derived. God was not voted in. God has never waited on an election or the results of the majority consensus. God is not the Almighty because creatures decided to make Him such. Christ is not Lord because you prayed and told Him He could be. God is, God's throne is eternally independent of all other things. Though the nations rage, God rules. Men may complain, but God controls. Presidents may deny it, but God still dominates. Kings take counsel, God takes charge. Dictators might plan and scheme, but God is the potentate and the sovereign. It literally does not matter what happens in human history under the sun. God freely, happily, unashamedly, independently reigns supreme. Now, what are his credentials? He is. He has all authority because he is God. We might say there was one election, one ballot box, one pencil, one box to check, one person in line, and only one voter, and it was God. And it was sealed. Because he is, he reigns. Or salvation, we might ask. Is man's salvation, man's redemption contingent upon man? Is this merely a, a debate between, well, well, how do you think salvation works out? Or which, which, line do you, which side of the line do you fall on? Are you an Arminian or a Calvinist? How does it work? No, we start with God. God is independent. Therefore, all of His acts are independent. And therefore, in Psalm 62, 1, it says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. Salvation is not simply an act. 
that God performs, while it does include that. Salvation is not the culmination of several events that God orchestrated after the fact to bring about a happy ending for people who would see the blessing of it and place their trust in Him. God is the source of salvation. And God's work of salvation is completely independent of any creature action. Now, while we His people certainly benefit and creatures are used in the carrying out of the several details and all of creation is awaiting its consummation, God's work of salvation, which finds its source in Himself, is not in any way dependent on any man. Again, it is in spite of man. God is not hoping for people to believe. God is waiting with anticipation to see who all might be the beneficiaries of His work of salvation. Salvation is of God, and then it comes to us. Jonah says, in Jonah 2.9, Salvation belongs to the Lord. And therefore, there's nothing we can do to earn it, lose it, keep it, thwart it, or interrupt it. It's an independent act. An independent work of God sourced from God. Just a couple more. Three more. Very quickly. Our hope. Can we trust this God? Can we who are of such weak faith hold on to the hope that God has set before us? Psalm 62, 5 says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from Him. And so the hope that we have, that His word is true, that His promises will stand, that our inheritance awaits us, all of that finds its source in God. God gives the hope. And so it's not for us to conjure up on our own or just sustain our hope. He gives it. With regard to His will, or His purpose, His decree. Ephesians 1.11, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having pre been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. God's will or purpose is not dependent on any created thing or any event within creation history. So while we do not know all of the exact details of the future, we know that the independent God has independently pur pur purposed and is independently working all things according to the counsel of His own independent will. No event, no person, no ruler, no government, no law has any effect whatsoever on the purpose of God. And so we never have need to fear that any circumstance, that any event might somehow bring about an unordained end that is not for our good. Because he's decreed according to the counsel of his will. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand. Why is that? Because his will and the execution of it are independent of the hosts of heaven. It's independent of the inhabitants of the earth. He uses them, but he is not dependent upon them. All of the actions of God. In Psalm 115.3 we read, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God does not take into consideration the feelings or the desires of any men. God is independent. God does as he pleases. He does not await our approval. He is not waiting to see what happens. God is not coerced. 
to do things that he really doesn't want to do. He's completely independent. Life, wisdom, love, authority, salvation, hope, God's will, God's actions. We could go on. Every attribute of God, every work of God, they flow to us as blessings of eternal value and they're not dependent upon you. They're not dependent upon me. They're not dependent upon any created thing. They exist first in God as self-derived, self-sustained perfections and then they come to us in spite of us for our good. So the Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself. He needs nothing, depends on nothing, hopes for nothing, consumes nothing. And here's our great hope. Our life is hid with Christ in God. Let's pray.